Thank you for joining our Transform 365 podcast, a discipleship and teaching ministry of SWCC. We pray this teaching helps you to grow in your journey with Christ. We have some great resources available for you on transform365.com webpage. Feel free to download discipleship materials, small group teaching, as well as peruse our training workshops. Also take time to visit www.swcc.org for videos, teaching, and more. We thank you for listening and your support, and we would love to hear from you. So use our contact page and drop us a line. Now for our podcast teaching. So welcome to the Transform 365 podcast. I'm Pastor Cody, and here's my co-host, Pastor John. Today, we're very happy and honored to have uh, Dr. Jody Diller with us today. Uh, hi, Dr. Dillo. Would you? Uh, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and we thank you for giving us your time today. And um, why don't you give us a little bit of your background, uh, kind of explain uh, for our listeners a little bit about you. Okay. Um, both my wife and I came to Christ uh, when we were university students. She came through Campus Crusade, and I was followed up by Campus Crusade. And that really set me on a vision of ministry that involved indigenous multiplication, you know, 2 Timothy 2.2. So we joined Crusade staff, and we were on staff for eight years. Uh, Four of those, I was uh, a student at Dallas Seminary. Then we went on staff up at Cornell University to start the work there. At one point, I came back to Dallas to work on a marriage ministry with Barry Leventhal and Don Meredith, not the quarterback, the fan. (laughs) (laughs) During that time, I decided I was becoming more academically motivated, so I applied for the doctoral program and did my dissertation on the pre-flood vapor canopy, which is a really scientific deal. But they let me do it because I had the uh, head of the mechanical engineering department at SMU as a is a, uh, what do you call it, a tutor or counselor. And after that, towards the end of my time at Dallas, uh, Dean Concer called me and asked me to come up and teach at Trinity Seminary, hmm. which I did and I loved. But Linda and I had always had a vision for the mission field. And uh, I remember Bud Hinkson, who followed me up as a new believer, he used to come through every every year to try to recruit me into his latest vision. But this time he struck gold. (laughs) He started talking about a covert extension biblical training program behind the Iron Curtain. Mm. And I had a kind of aha moment with God. And I turned to Linda and I said, we're going. (laughs) (laughs) We were in Vienna, I think it was about six, seven months later. Uh, That began uh, the rest of my life which I was involved in extension biblical training at a more advanced level, but emphasizing nationals training, nationals, indigenous multiplication. And uh, we did that in closed countries primarily. We were in Vienna for 15 years doing this, launching into Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. And uh, then uh, I think it was about 92, we felt the Lord leading us to Hong Kong to take it to China, which is, you know, the next big communist country. We've been working there for many years. In fact, just the last couple of years, we turned it over to the Chinese 100%. They have their own board and their own financing. Wow. 
But now we're working uh, in the Middle East a lot and uh, other close countries around the world. While we were in Hong Kong, we started the work in China, Vietnam, and Nepal. So that's the elevator speech. Perhaps it was too long. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. It's, it's always a, a joy to hear people's experience and being called in the ministry. So that, that's a, definitely a joy. Dr. Dillo, I would say that you have a varied amount of topics that you write on. Uh, the Reign of the Servant Kings and the updated version, which is almost 700 pages extra, mm. <laughs> Final Destiny. A biblical evaluation of the 20th century tongues, the waters above, and uh, various chapters in different um, grace-filled books and uh, journals. Your wife, Linda, also, she's a, a big, big writer as well. Uh, Call My Anxious Heart, What's It Like to Be Married to Me, Intimate Issues, Satisfy My Thirsty Soul, My Journey to Contentment, just to name a few. I think she has something about 20 titles under, under her name. Let me ask you, out of all the different things that you write about and uh, speak on, uh, what is your favorite type topic to, to write or speak about? Well, probably things related to the judgment seat of Christ. I, I love to speak on uh, the Apostle Paul and, and uh, how he ended his life. I have fought the good fight. I have uh, finished my course and I've kept the faith. And uh, that's always been a prominent deal. Whenever they ask me to speak on something along that, those lines, I usually... Mm. Uh, Go to that and build, you know, the discussion of the judgment seat and the goal of a life well lived out of the, the apostle's life. Uh, other than that, I love to speak on apologetics and uh, Bible science issues. I'm not a scientist, but I, I majored in electrical engineering at Oregon State. So I've always kind of loved and thought about the, the interaction between science and the Bible. Uh, but Overall, it's how to how, how to uh, achieve a life well lived. That's my favorite topic. Yeah, your your opus, I would say, has to be final destiny. Destiny, the reign of the servant kings, the future yeah. reign of the servant kings. Excuse me. Uh, let me ask you, what brought you to revise? the the reign of the servant kings to final destiny that it is today because some people may have said it may be easier to do you know a new edition you know, a second edition or something of that nature or or a two-part i guess you could say but to, to completely revise it in the way that you did what what brought you to do that well let me go back a step when i first moved to vienna austria uh one of my our first area of ministry was Romania. And I was in there with a group of 12 Baptist pastors. And I was teaching, you know, verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. And when I got to Hebrews 6, they were astounded that I believed in eternal security. Mm. <laughs> they, they just couldn't believe it. And they invited me back. It was a fun time. There was no tension or conflict, but they were all Arminians. And uh, just really wonderful men. And they invited me back to speak on eternal security. They wanted a kind of an interactive conference for three days. Yeah. So we went through all the passages. And by the end of the time, 
all of them but one basically thought, you know, this is plausible. And uh, I think, I don't know for sure, but most of them seem to have accepted it. But I had a problem. When I went home at night, as I'm walking back to the hotel, I'm realizing that I'm uh, in an inconsistency in my answers to them. Uh-huh. Because I explained Hebrews 6, I, I was teaching these guys are Christians. Yeah. And, uh, the, the possible loss is the loss of an inheritance reward, not yeah. salvation. Okay. But in the rest of the New Testament, like in you know John 15, the problem of the vine and the branches, and one gets cast off and all that, all those other warnings, I was assuming they were non-believers. Yeah. Yeah. So I realized I was inconsistent. So eight years later, I became convinced uh, of another approach. It took me many, many years. And that was published by the reign of the, uh, the, reign of the servant kings in what, uh, 80? No, I guess it was 81. And no, no, it was later than that. It was 91, but yeah, late, was 89 or something. And uh, well, over the years since I published it, there was a lot of interaction, a lot of journal articles, and uh, a lot of conversations with the reform people. And I realized that I needed a complete update. And the goal, because the problem is when you interpret one of these passages in a different way, there's an interlocking web of other passages that are affected by your interpretation. Yeah, for sure. So I realized if I was if free, if the free grace view is correct, we really have to consider all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, what was it? 12 years later, I came up with the first drafts of Final Destiny, which is published in 2012. So I really, the reason I revised it was I knew in, when I published Reign of the Servant Kings, there's a whole lot of passages that I had not commented on. Mm -hmm. And as I saw the criticism, uh, constructive criticism, so there, some were hostile, but uh, I thought, okay, well, I need to think about those and get all that into a revised version. Mm. Dr. Dillo, did you, um, in your acknowledgments in the, in the book of the Reign of Servant Kings, you wrote that um, a set of tapes by Zane Hodges on the book of Hebrews was given to you. Is that the way you got into the free, on um, the free grace? You got involved in free grace circles? Oh, absolutely. Uh, when I listened to Zane's lectures, uh, the, these are lectures at, from a course at Dallas. Um, uh, I, I just thought this is wonderful because the way he was approaching Hebrews six and the other warning passages just made sense. I, I, I felt I didn't have to add ad hoc explanations. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it changed my perspective a lot. And that's what got me going. And of course, since that time, uh, you know, I was active in GES and a lot of those speakers helped me and, and uh, uh, some of the their journal articles and whatnot. So uh, yeah, that was basically it. Zane got me going and uh really helped me uh, let me ask you as a follow-up to that you know people call the uh free grace movement um anti-lordship but as one reads your books um this is you know the, the final destiny reign for of the servant kings 
and hear your lectures. One sees that there's actually a call to be subservient to Jesus as Lord. So how would you respond to somebody that would come and say, you know, you're being antinomian or anti-lordship, anti-law, whatever they want to throw the labels at? What would you be your response? Well, I like to think of free grace as grace with accountability. Hmm. And, uh, you know, in reform circles and uh, Arminian circles, they have some of the same motivations, rewards and all that stuff. But the final uh, one is that if you're not living the life, you need to examine yourself because you may be on the, you know, on the way to the lake of fire. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're an Arminian, they might argue from all these passages, well, you were born again, but you lost it and you're on your way. If you're a reform, you tend to say, well, if you were really born again, you wouldn't be living like that. So you're, uh, you weren't really born again. So you're on your way to the lake of fire. So both viewpoints agree that uh, if you're not living the life, you're on your way to hell. Yeah. Whereas the free grace movement gives a much more ennobling uh, motivation. Uh, positively, it's the opportunity for honor, well done, uh, intimacy. There'll be presence at the Messianic banquet and the wedding feast of the Lamb. And perhaps uh, maybe most important is opportunities for service, you know, five cities, 10 cities. Mm-hmm. And there's also the possibility of rebuke at the judgment seat of Christ, save through fire. Or as John puts it, uh, was it First John 2, 28, he says, mm-hmm. some will draw back in shame at his coming. And he's talking to little children, as he calls them, believers mm-hmm. there. So it's grace with accountability, and it's a more ennobling accountability. And yet there are consequences uh, for, neg- for not following through on your commitments at the judgment seat of Christ. So there'll be loss, possible shame, and even rebuke. But you can camp on these wonderful thoughts like, well done, good and faithful servant, and whatnot, without a fear that you're going to hell just because uh, you're not living the life well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's grace with accountability, and it's a better kind of accountability than asking a person to examine himself every time he sins for the rest of his life to be sure that his uh, conversion was real and not uh, phony. It's kind of the sense that a lot of times God's God's nature does not diminish just because you stand on one side of, of the grace spectrum uh, on the other, you know, just because we stand and say that, you know, uh, we stand on the side of free grace, you know, uh, a grace, a, a salvation without uh, works. That, that does not mean that you're saying that God is not a righteous and, and noble God and, and not a judge. You know, it says he is still a judge and a righteous judge on, on top yeah. of that. So I think those things all come into account. At least we're trying to synthesize that or bring them into account on the free, free grace side of things. Yeah. So. So, Dr. Dillo, if somebody came up to you and said, uh, I've heard of Calvinism, I've heard of Arminianism, 
what is free grace theology? And I know you touched on it a little bit um, just a minute ago, but um, how would you explain free grace theology who's never heard of free grace theology? Well, I probably, in the elevator speech, I, I probably, <laughs> <laughs> you know, camp on the fact that uh, of God's infinite grace, even while we are failing, and it's not necessarily an indication that we're going to hell. I, I think there was an illustration that Zane once used. I think that's where I got it, where he said, uh, if your son came to you and said, Dad, am I really your son? And your dad says to you, well, son, it depends on whether or not you really obey me. Mm -hmm. Well, Dad, sometimes I don't. Well, you need to look at that, son, because that means you may not be my son. Hmm. Whereas the free grace movement doesn't approach people like that. But uh, in that little parable, uh, that's basically how both the Arminians and the Calvinists have to logically uh, say that. In fact, in different words, that is what they say. So the free grace movement says, even though we fail uh, God is for us, and uh, we emphasize a lot more the fact that we have a sympathetic priest who's mm. not pointing his finger, but who entered into the horror of this world, suffered its uh, uh, abuse and rejection, and so he's sympathetic because mm. we, we uh, you know, we need a prophet who talks to God, uh, talks to us for God. We need a teacher who uh, talks about God to man, but we also need a priest who talks to God for us. And that's what we have in the free grace movement. We have a sympathetic priest, an advocate with the father who's on our team, who loves us even when we fail. That doesn't mean he, don't, he doesn't discipline us or hold us accountable, but he never rejects us. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, holding on to the concept that just because we're saying that there's no works in grace, that doesn't mean that there was no cost. It's just the cost went on Christ. Right, exactly. And, and you know, the hardness of our salvation was placed on him. Mm. Uh, I think there's, a, there's another critical issue in the elevator speech. Uh, you know, the reform and Armenian concept that uh, you've got to promise God that you'll turn from all known sin, make kind of an open commitment to that up front. Um, appears to mean that, well, there's something more than trust in Christ alone. Mm -hmm. There's works that you have to commit to. And I understand, you know, the Reformers say, well, you don't understand. Well, I do understand. I just disagree. Uh, you know, they try to say that, well, those works are accomplished by God in you. But, of course, that's not biblical. It's, there's a synergism between God's work and our work, and we're participating in that. So, uh, basically, what this means is, is that that, uh, uh, that African chief who's got 20 wives doesn't have to promise God he'll get rid of all 19 of them before he can become a Christian. Mm -hmm. 
or the drug addict doesn't have to promise God he'll never uh, shoot up again before he can become a Christian. Yeah. Um, uh, there has to be an openness to change. I, uh, that's where I depart a little bit with uh, GES, the Grace Evangelical Society. But uh, there's not, a, there's not a, a decision on your heart to turn from all of that in order to accept the free gift of eternal life in Christ. John tells us in the book of Revelation that we come to him without cost. Mm. Come and drink without mm-hmm. cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. You know when um, you know what's puzzling to me, Doctor Dillo, is that, and I think you mentioned this during one of your um, talks at one of the conferences. I can't remember which conference it was, but how scholars today have no idea what free grace theology is. And I think you oh, made yeah. a mention of Craig uh, Craig Blomberg that you yeah. asked him the question. Um, I think you were somewhere in England doing some research, and you asked them. Um, what is free grace theology? And he said, oh, it's it's that theology where somebody just raises their hand or comes up during an altar call and and says that he believes in Christ and he could do and he, then he does whatever he wants. And and like when I, when I hear that, I'm like, are wow. you serious? You're you're a <laughs> scholar and you, you think that's what free grace theology is. That's amazing. Yeah, well, of course, their concern is if, if you don't have that final threat of eternal damnation hanging on your head. Yeah. You don't have a strong enough uh, inclination or motivation to persist in holiness to the end of life. Mm-hmm. So their legitimate concern is antinomianism. Right. Uh, that people can take the grace of God, God for granted, which is exactly what was going on in the first century, mm-hmm. according to the Apostle Paul. Yeah, uh, and, and he he responded to that uh, concern with Romans six, uh, our union with Christ, and he points out when we don't have to do when we don't want to do, but we don't want to do. Uh, normally, we don't do it. Yeah, if, Jody, let me ask if there is one takeaway that uh, you would want people to grasp from Final Destiny. What would you say it is? What would it be? Um, yeah, I thought about that question. Um, I think um, probably I would focus on something I've already said that, uh, well, it kind of, it's kind of two things that are related. Uh <laughs> But first of all, and most important, that our goal in life is to hear him say, well done, mm. in other words, honor, and to participate with greater intimacy and to find greater opportunities to serve him in eternity future. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing. And that's what I devoted the last third of the book to explaining all those passages. hmm uh, so, yeah, it's just that there's a whole lot of stuff that you've got to consider before you get there. Yeah. Because there's a whole history of interpretation where terms like uh, eternal life and entering the kingdom and whatnot, uh, or salvation always means, uh, you know, deliverance from uh, final damnation. So all of those things have to be examined. 
uh, first before you can set up the whole doctrine of rewards on a solid biblical basis. So, Jody, you didn't um, do Final Destiny to re- um, to change your views. You just wrote it to add to the to, to the great service. Yeah. Yeah. There, there were things I changed. Uh, one of the big new insights to me uh, was the definition of what it means to enter the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Because in uh, in Reign of the Servant Kings, I, I equated it with going to heaven. Um, but as I looked up all the passages in the New Testament about entering the kingdom, I found out that a whole lot of them were based on works. Mm. And I, I realized that when I wrote uh, Final Destiny, not Final uh, Reign of the Servant Kings, but I thought, well, I'll get back to that later. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it was, it was that kind of thing that made me realize that. Uh, Entering the heaven, entering the kingdom does not necessarily mean always what it means in John, you know, three, uh, where it clearly means enter into heaven when you die. But in many places, it means entering into a kingdom way of living. Mm -hmm. It's a call to discipleship, Mm -hmm. not to salvation. I mean, obviously, uh, it's addressed to the 12 who are already saved in, in the Sermon on the Mount. So I worked through all those passages and every reference in the Old Testament to the kingdom and whatnot and came up with, I feel, is a plausible explanation that eliminates the works aspect of all those entering the heaven. Uh, well, it doesn't eliminate it, but it, it, it says when it's connected with works, it's, it's uh, talking about um, entering into a kingdom way of living, resulting in greater honor. Uh, in the final destiny of man. Hmm. What, why do you feel as a follow-up to that? Why do you feel it's important to have clarity between, um, say, eternal life um, and heaven and the millennial reign or the kingdom, you know, the kingdom reign? Why, why do you think, you know, entering into the kingdom and entering eternal life, there's the, it's, it's important to distinguish the difference between them? Well, I've I've kind of alluded to this already, but um, I think if you don't make this distinction, uh, you end up with the problem that there are many passages that do seem to teach salvation by works. So you can understand how, say, the the Catholics uh, have added works into the system. And of course, many false religions have added it in. Um, Perhaps, well, let me illustrate with one passage that that affects many. If you go to uh, uh, Matthew 5.20 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of Mm -hmm. heaven. Mm Now, all my life, uh, I had interpreted enter the kingdom in the basis of John chapter three. You know, it's enter into heaven. Uh, The problem is when I started looking at righteousness in the gospel of Matthew, it never referred to justification, righteousness, salvific righteousness. In, In every instance, 
in Matthew, it referred to a way of living, to character. Uh, so I said, well, okay, if that's true, then what he's talking about there is entering into a kingdom way of life. And this solved another problem because in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, it says uh, that if you disobey even the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the, the kingdom. kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently <clears throat> you can be a false prophet saying mm. things that God did not say and leading others astray and still be in the kingdom. Now I thought, well, the only way you can harmonize that with verse 20 is to say that uh, enter the kingdom in verse 20 can't be heaven. It's got to be a way of living. And uh, of course, uh, you know, a little later in chapter six was around verse 33, seek ye first his kingdom that is, I believe, is in Dietus, uh, in his righteousness. In other words, uh, his way of life. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's even defined that way. And of course, Paul says that uh, the kingdom is, uh, you know, joy and whatnot in the Holy Spirit. And uh, he doesn't equate it in some verses necessarily with escaping final damnation. So why is the topic of rewards and reigning and a triumphal entry important? Um, you know, especially today, I know that when you look at it in light of what you're saying here is that the, the idea of reigning and self in an eternity, you, you trust Christ for eternal salvation. Um, and now your your life lived for Christ and discipleship as a follower of Christ, it gets you um, the triumphal entrance. It gets you uh, the recognition in heaven. I mean, um, we see that even in Old Testament. You know, in Daniel chapter ten, uh, when when Gabriel comes to Daniel, he says, uh, you know, highly esteemed him of God. Uh, that kind of lets us know that. God had been kind of bragging on Daniel up in the throne room, which is a neat thing to see. So some of those aspects you kind of see carried from Old Testament, New Testament, and things like that. So why is it important to teach on these topics of rewards and reigning and triumph, um, triumphal entry? Why do you think it's important to keep those at the forefront or um, just as one of the topics that pastors, commentators, theologians, we, we speak on today? One of the big problems with man in the 20th centuries, in part brought on by the discoveries of the vastness of the universe and uh, the large size, is that uh, we've embraced uh, an idea of our insignificance. And modern man lacks uh, a purpose uh, for living. Mm. And I remember reading Viktor Frankl's book on the Holocaust, and he noted that those in, the, in Auschwitz with him that had a higher purpose for living, namely it was God, religion, Jew or Christian, coped with the horror that they had with 
a lot better. And he developed a whole approach to psychology called logotherapy. In other words, core problem that many of us bring into the psychologist's office is a lack of meaning. Now, this isn't to say that uh, reform scholars and believers and Armenians don't have this uh, as well. But it's a more general thing where it, within the free grace concept, it's specifically defined. And it's highly emphasized, it, it, it reflects the strong emphasis that Jesus and the epistles, Paul, Peter, John, put onto uh, rewards and honor at the judgment seat of Christ. I remember uh, one afternoon many years ago, I went through all the rewards listed uh, in the Bible. You know, you got the seven crowns and, and uh, all kinds of different categories of reward. And I realized, and I've already alluded to this, that you can basically put all of them, I think, comfortably under three categories. Honor is a, obviously a, a, a big one. But uh, intimacy, enhanced intimacy, apparently there's a correlation between our intimacy with God in this life, our future state. These things, uh, it, oh, excuse me, and then opportunities for service to serving him. And I think when you express it like that, it invests our life with a, a very ennobling eternal purpose. And it's more defined. It uh, explains more passages in the scripture. It brings all of these things uh, really to light. Those who live with those things in view find more meaning and satisfaction in life. And as they adjust their lives to conform to those ultimate goals, uh, they're happier people. They find, as the Bible calls it, life, mm. not just eternal life, but an abundant life now. Amen. Uh, Dr. Dillo, how about um, we already mentioned that antinomianism is one of the objections against free grace theology. Um, th now, speaking of rewards, um, some will say that people who subscribe to free grace theology, they live their Christian life to receive rewards when, you know, when they die. That's their main goal of living this Christian life. I heard Tom Schreiner say he was lecturing at Master's Seminary and he said something like, oh, yeah, the people who teach free grace theology, especially from the book of Hebrews, um, like nobody taught the book of Hebrews, like the way we taught. It's something that was just, that just started. Like, what would you, well, how would you say, you know, how would you answer that to somebody that the way we interpret Hebrews, yeah, they, the, is, the, there's this, um, there's, there's actually a couple sides too. the guys that kind of, they, they stand on the more classical side of grace. They say, uh, they say that, Free grace guys are overly motivated um, for by rewards. I guess yeah. that's what we're, you're saying, right? Yeah, sort of. Yeah. yeah. What would you say? How would you object well, to that? I, you know, C.S. Lewis in his book *The Way of Glory* speaks to this issue. Uh, is pursuing rewards uh, selfish? Is it greedy? Right. And he makes the point that there are certain kinds of rewards that are not, mm. which are simply the natural outcome of how you live your life. And he illustrates in marriage, for example, 
uh, if I marry my wife because she's got money, that's greedy. Mm. But if I marry her for love, that's not greedy. Because mm-hmm. uh, it involves my love as being sacrificial to her and the fact uh, and her love for me. So there are certain kinds of rewards that are not uh, greedy, but they're the natural outcome of the nature of life without focusing and saying, I want more crowns than somebody else, because that's not the, the Christian motivation. The motivation is, you know, I, there's, well, there's a bunch of motivations that are more foundational than simply the reward, but the reward is the natural outcome of the others. Uh, Jesus made it clear that one of the motivations is uh, uh, to do things for his sake and not your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul said uh, his goal is to please God. Mm-hmm. Uh, another motivation that's given that underpins all this is that we do things because we love God. Paul made a big point of that, yeah. uh, not to get a reward. So underpinning the idea of rewards are these noble motivations on why we pursue it. And the rewards themselves are simply the outcome. So when I go about my daily life, I'm not thinking, gee, I'm going to get a reward if I do this. Mm -hmm. However, that said, a lot of these uh, tough decisions in life where uh, we have to make a decision that is contrary to the culture, that'll cost us something. I am comforted by the fact that Jesus said, if I do that, if I follow his way of life, instead of giving into the culture, that he's going to honor me for it at the judgment seat of Christ. Mm. I don't think that's greedy. Yeah. The motivation to honor him. Yeah. I've, I've kind of looked at it as uh, Paul says in first Corinthians chapter three, the idea of that refining fire where we are you know he's he's testing our works it's really just to see the the quality of one's work i've looked at more towards what was the motivation what was Mm -hmm. our ultimate goal was it to bring honor and glory to god or was it to bring honor and glory to ourselves the overriding goal is to honor him yeah yeah because there's so many passages in scripture that say god is contrary to you know, the haughty or the puffed mm-hmm, up and, mm-hmm. and the, you know, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I, 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 I totally see that. So when it comes to like books, I'm, I'm a book, like, I love collecting books. And um, when it comes to free grace theology, okay. He's, he's misrepresenting. He likes collecting digital books. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of a change to digital. Hey, books listen, now. I'm with you there. I can find stuff in them very quickly. Yeah. yeah. I can see all the books you have in your background there. Yeah. You want to get rid of those? I'll buy right, them. I've got a, yeah. I've got about 15, 1800 books here in back of me <laughs> that are all, all the way around, but I find myself more and more, uh, working with Logos, where I've got four thousand books on my computer. Yeah, just <laughs> type in one <laughs> word and fifteen different like things. Yeah. <laughs> Before I ask this question about the, you know, what, what do you recommend for books when it comes to free grace theology? Um, go, we, off air we talked about the the rich young ruler. So you kind of convinced me to believe that the rich young ruler was an um. No, no, no he's a believer. He, he was a believer. He's a believer, right? Know what the next step is? How right. to become mature or perfect, as Jesus put it. Because you said it in the you say then why did 
Jesus offer him uh, to do works when he asked the question, right? right. But then when, when I read, then when I read Zane's part, <laughs> I go back and I go, which one? Like Zane convinced me one way, then you convinced me the other way. So what would you say to, to me to try to convince me on your view? Well, I know it's hard to go against Zane, but, <laughs> but yeah, it uh, is. I'm in dangerous water here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I spent a lot of time on that. It seemed to me that this guy, I'm interpreting who he is by the way in which Jesus answered him. Right. If he was asking Jesus, you know, when he, he says, uh, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If he was asking Jesus how to get to heaven when he dies, I just can't believe that Jesus would have said, you know, the law, obey it. Mm -hmm. I think he would have said what he said to Nicodemus. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. But secondly, this guy obviously had heard Jesus and was excited about him, and he ran and fell down at his feet and called him Lord. Now, Jesus's answer, plus his attitude, seemed to communicate to me that this guy was born again. And uh, so Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, there's one more thing you got to do. If, if Jesus is talking about the justifying righteousness of Christ there, it's hardly reasonable to believe that Jesus would give another thing to do. Right. Because salvation is without doing anything. Mm -hmm. It's received freely. So that's how basically I would respond. But this also leads you into, you know, the rest of the context you know, where the disciples are understanding, it seems, that he's talking about rewards in heaven. What will we get yeah. if we do this? You know, what the rich young ruler was supposed to do. Yeah. And Jesus doesn't say, well, Lord, well, he left a lot of heaven. things back home. It's kind of their response. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, he, you know, Jesus says, well, you'll get a thousand times more in this life and in the life to come. So the whole interaction seems to be about the reward inheritance, mm -hmm. not the salvation inheritance. And it was this kind of thing that led me uh, to really explore these concepts of uh, inheritance. And I did a lot of that. I looked through all the references in the Old Testament and the New, and I found that commonly uh, there was a lot of scripture about an inheritance based on works that had nothing to do with going to heaven when you die. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, okay, there's two kinds of inheritance. There's a, a you know, a by faith alone inheritance, which involves heaven when you die. And then there's a reward inheritance based upon works. And of course, the same thing relates to salvation. Sometimes salvation means get to heaven when you die. Sometimes it can mean a very fulfilled life now or deliverance from some temporal circumstance. So, and then life itself sometimes means heaven, but uh, when those things are, when life is presented in the New Testament as heaven in the future, it's kind of hard to square it because it's based on works many times. So I thought, well, okay, uh, life, and we know life can mean different things. All you got to do is go through the book of Hebrews and know it means an abundant, fulfilled life now if you follow God's principles. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, okay, sometimes life means heaven when you die. That's when it's offered to faith alone. 
And sometimes life means an abundant life or also an abundant entrance. And it just depends on the context. If it's works, it's that. If it's faith alone, it's heaven when you die. And once you get those three concepts fixed in your head, you see there's possible ways of interpreting some of these problematic passages about works getting into into heaven and harmonizing them with what Jesus said elsewhere and what Paul definitely emphasizes in Galatians and Romans, that it's by faith alone apart from works. Yeah, I think you you spoke to this earlier. I think keeping in mind as we read scripture a lot of times, the synonyms or or I guess the even just the names that God has given us, one of them that you said earlier is that we're children of God. And uh, kind of going back to that again, when a child lives in the house, they don't own the house. The parent still owns the house. Now, the parent can say who is going to inherit, though. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And the parent has full authority over that. And Sometimes it is based on the behavior of the child. If the child is, you know, maybe does deal with, you know, those demons in life of drinking alcohol or drugs or something like that, and they're afraid that the child will squander their inheritance, they don't give them as steep of an inheritance as they would the child that has stayed and obeyed and, you know, has has lived the right life with the parent. And I think if we kind of keep that in mind as we read scripture, okay, God calls me child, God calls me his child, then these passages also tend to make sense. Yeah, good uh, way of saying it. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I I think you also mentioned in your book, uh, Dr. Dillo, that um, when entering or inheriting, when you're reading it in the Bible, if it's in the future tense, it's how do you how do you um, how do you see it if it's in the future? Well, that I think that was regarding uh, life. Every time, uh, well, I need to look it up in my own book. <laughs> uh, I was waiting for you to take. Pull out your logos. <laughs> Let me stay on the on the safe side. Yeah. <laughs> Again, what I'm saying about inheritance is sometimes, in fact, quite a few times, I think 14 times, it's based on works. I just said, well, that's obviously not the inheritance of heaven, which is based on faith alone. So I just started to draw that distinction. Yeah. And a lot of these difficulties evaporated when mm-hmm. I admitted that possibility. And, uh, and I didn't have to throw in ad hoc assumptions like, well, uh, if you were really born again, you'd perceive in good works to the end of life. So that inheritance uh, based on works is simply not a condition of salvation, as the this is how the reform teaches, but the uh, characteristic of everyone who does get salvation. Right. And uh, you know, you look at the text, and you well, I guess it could mean that, but it seems like an ad hoc explanation thrown in to justify uh, the perseverance of the saints doctrine held by our reformed brothers in Christ. Mm-hmm. Personal question here, Dr. Dillo. What set you off on your theological road um, or what drew you into the beliefs that you had today? Now, you mentioned a little bit about the uh, listening to the Hebrew lectures of Dr. Hodges, but what would you say um, influenced you the most in the beliefs you have today? I think the thing that secured it, the thing that got me started was that contradiction uh, that I was explaining to the Romanians, Mm -hmm. where in Hebrews 6, I was saying the warnings apply 
to those who are believers. I had just heard saying states, <laughs> but in the rest of the New Testament, I was saying, no, no, those are addressed to people who are not saved and warning them that they need to examine their foundations or they're going to hell. So that's what started me. But what really encouraged me over the years, particularly when I got into Final Destiny, but it started with Reign of the Servant Kings, I found that as I approached all these scores of problem passages that seemed to set up a impossibility of assurance or, you know, because you got to persevere to the end of life on one view, uh, or it seemed to set up that salvation was by works. When I said, okay, let me try to look at this from a free grace perspective in redefining these three terms, uh, save, inheritance, uh, whatnot, uh, enter the kingdom in a different way that I'd already justified by extensive examination that there are two plausible ways to take the, the definition of those terms. And it all depended on the context. Now, what encouraged me is that time after time after time, when I said, okay, well, let's consider it from this perspective, it doesn't really fit the context. I, I was so encouraged to find, well, yeah, uh, I don't have to, you know, throw in any extra assumptions. And, you know, Occam's razor, that, that argument is the, the theory that uh, harmonizes the most data with the fewest possible assumptions is mm -hmm. probably right. Yeah. And I you don't have to play theological gymnastics. It all fit. So yeah. that encouraged me to believe that I was really on the right track with this. Yeah, there's no theological gymnastics being played to. Right. I heard you in one uh, podcast where uh, the person asked you um, if you were to just name one book. I think you mentioned Gospel Under Siege by Zane Hodges, right? To, right. That really to got start you off. Going. Yeah. Yeah. The good thing about Zane's approach to this is he wrote simple books that had yeah. Very profound exegesis, but were readable for everyone, and they were short. Hmm. And uh, so that's a great book to start somebody else on and, and and get them thinking about this in a different way. I think also that book, uh, The Hungry Inherit, mm -hmm. that he wrote, um, it, opens, it opened my eyes to another approach to a lot of these passages. So that's a good starter book, in my, my opinion. Yeah. How should someone approach hard to understand passages? So let's say we have somebody listening right now and they're coming across a passage uh, like you had, you had uh, quoted earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. But let's say it's, um, you know, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out for it is easier. You know, it is better for you to enter into the kingdom without an eye than for your body to burn in Gehenna. And then they come to, you know, another passage where Jesus is saying, you know, to Nicodemus, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you know, John three sixteen. whoever believes has eternal life. How would you recommend somebody coming across these, these passages, these problem passages to handle these without, you know, uh, trying to go to a commentary without trying to somebody else's writings yeah. or books how would you tell them, hey, this is this would be the easiest way to understand these passages 
when you come across them within scripture. Think in this way or apply it in this way. Look at them in this way. What, what would you say, Dr. Dillo? Well, I can describe my own journey on that. What I did and still do is I start with my biases. In mm. other words, my inclinations that I've, I've, uh, I already have about the meaning of certain words or concepts in the passage. Like we all do that. Uh, we have to start somewhere. So I go through the details of the passage uh, with this in mind that my bias is probably correct. But I have, but then I'm, what I really want to know is this what God said? Mm. And I bring that heart to it. Uh, and I start looking at the details. And when they eat, when the details uh, conflict with my bias, that drives me into a lot more research. And in my case, the, a, a major tool uh, is a concordance. Mm. And I realized that, uh, you know, probably the average Christian is not going to do that. He's, they're going to tend to just depend upon their prior viewpoint that they've been taught. And that's understandable. But I would get out my concordance and I would look up every example for existence uh, of the word life. Mm. or every ex and, and I'd look it up in uh, the, the Septuagint and uh, the New Testament. And I'd also look it up in Hebrew. And I would find a range of meanings. Mm. So, oh, you know, I thought it just meant regeneration. I mean, <laughs> that would have been my initial bias, probably. Yeah. Uh, so that brings me to the point where I'm, I'm looking at this passage and it seems to contradict my prior bias. So I th thought, well, what initial assumptions am I making that could be wrong? And that's what sends me into the... Uh, uh, the concordances. I see an example might be, uh, okay, the meaning of repentance. Now, everybody knows that uh, that means turn from sin, right? <laughs> and uh, Depends who you're asking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I thought, well, you know, repentance means to turn. So I looked up all uses of the word of the verb and the noun metanoia and the verb metanoia uh, in the Greek Old Testament translation, the Septuagint. And I compared it with the Hebrew words. See, this took some time. And I realized that uh, metanoia uh, consistency, and I think it was, I can't remember, 12, 15 times. It's always translated not by the Hebrew word shuv, which means to turn or return, but it's always translated by the word naham, which means to regret. So when I come to the New Testament, I thought, oh, uh, repent for the forgiveness of sins, and you, you know, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, or when John the Baptist and Jesus says, repent and be baptized, what, what they're really saying there is uh, demonstrate uh, that you feel bad about your sin. And that is a necessary precursor to saving faith. Mm -hmm. You don't go to a doctor unless you believe you're sick. 
So a person has to acknowledge his sin. Now, that's not the same as saying, God, I promise you I'll never do again or submit to the Lordship of Christ. It's talking about an openness in his heart to realize that I'm guilty, that I need help. And then I go to the doctor who promises to give it to me for free. Mm. And when I do that, Jesus says, look, we're going to get to some of these other issues later. You know, I talked about the the African chief that's got to get rid of 19 wives or whatever, <laughs> or, the, or the, you know, the addict. Um, but for right now, I want to give you something for free. I acknowledge your acknowledgement of guilt, and I want to give you the gift of forgiveness, and it's going to cost you nothing. Now, what's going to happen is I'm going to flood you with the with new inclinations. The Holy Spirit is going to come to live in you, and you're going to have new motivations, uh, new power, uh, and uh, I'm going to help you overcome these things. And that's why I believe personally that uh, if a guy is truly born again, he's going to manifest some of that, at least initially. Uh, but in departure from, you know, say the Reformed guys, I don't believe that he's going to manifest it forever yeah. uh, to the end of life. Uh, he can fall away. And that's what all the warnings of the Bible are about. Don't fall away. Yeah. And for what it's worth, that's what Zane believes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think uh, I, I, I like Paul that says, um, you know, hey, the, what is written about the Cretans? They're liars. They're wicked. But in the same breath, he says, uh, greet my brothers in Crete. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that angle, but you it know. does seem to view them as believers, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Bunch so, of liars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dr. Dillo, I really uh, appreciate your time with John and I and um, just you coming out and uh, doing the podcast interview. Any uh, final thoughts as we, as we sign off with this uh, podcast today? I would exhort everybody listening to think about Paul's greatest trophies. Mm. He didn't speak about the movement he launched, the churches he founded, the thousands he discipled. He was proud of three things. That he fought the good fight. He Stayed finished forward. his course and he kept on believing. Mm. That's Amen. what we need to focus on, to live well and know an abundant entrance into yeah. the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Dillo, again, we thank you very much. And uh, may God bless you and Linda. And thank you. Okay. Well, thanks for your great questions, guys. I enjoyed it. Thank you for joining the Transform 365 podcast a ministry dedicated to helping you grow in relationship to Christ. If you want to know more, find us at transform365.com or on our church website, www.swcc.org, located in Miami, Florida. Until next time, remember, the only work in grace is to let grace work in you. God bless.